and good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, depending upon whatever the case may be, wherever you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight. Well, our long um, kind of uh, E.T. soap opera has a new uh, entry tonight in the sweepstakes of which show is going to be the more interesting, the more far out, the more exotic, the more strange. Um, We've got some tales to tell this morning, and we've got some data. And both are absolutely fascinating. So um, kind of, you know, get your snacks ready. You know, if you got to go to the kitchen, pick up something, bring it back, you know, or if you're in a car and you want to focus, pull over and listen carefully because for the next three hours, we're going to regale you with some amazing new results in the continuing soap opera, Who is the Other Side of Midnight Really Talking To? In terms of the uh, Baofeng radio, the two magic frequencies of 144.1 megahertz and 432 megahertz. And as you know, last week... Um, We had planned to actually do these shows uh, tonight and tomorrow night, last Saturday and Sunday night, but uh, the gremlins struck and we had a major power outage here and then I didn't get internet back for a while. And anyway, it's all very boring uh, housekeeping. The good news is tonight everything is working and we've had another additional several days to analyze the data. And we're going to knock your socks off with what you're going to hear in terms of what is being communicated, but the outstanding mystery, which maybe you can help us answer, is just who the heck are we talking to? I'm beginning to wonder if we're not talking to some kind of automated Bracewell probe type AI, except an AI which is removed from us by literally thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. And before you say, I want whatever he's smoking, listen to the next three hours, because you're going to see and hear some data, which is, it's just mind-boggling. And at the moment, it's kind of inexplicable. There are some things we believe we have nailed down, some confirmations of the model. But there's new mysteries which have been revealed. And then tomorrow night, we're going to do part two of this. We're going to talk about how we intend within the next week, within the next seven days, to answer the new mysteries, which, of course, are going to open up more mysteries. And that's what science is. You, you know, open up like 10 new ones for every one you solve. But uh, be that as it may, we are on we are on the hunt As Sherlock Holmes would have said, the game's afoot. So we're going to pursue this however and wherever and how far out into God knows where it leads. Before we get to all that, however, let me me bring you up to date on some some, uh, relevant news items. If you are new to the show, you want to go to theothersideofmidnight.com. That's our homepage. That's our URL. The other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner. 
which says very boldly against a backdrop, another backdrop that I've been archiving for many, many years of Stonehenge, the inner sanctum, the inner uh, trilithons and, and beyond, at I think that is sunset. I'm not quite sure, but I think that's a sunset shot. Anyway, it says the Stonehenge ET transmissions, first results part one for Saturday, February 12th. So click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, it says uh, fast links to items. Click on my name, and that will take you to my section down the page of Radio with Pictures. Item number one. This has kind of been a standard feature for the last uh, several shows, maybe, you know, since, well, since just after Christmas, when the Webb Space Telescope was successfully launched from French Guiana and spent weeks and weeks and weeks traveling to a distant point in space, actually a volume, an area, about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the Sun, called the Lagrange II position. Named, as you might imagine, uh, for a French mathematician who did the calculations of where these uh, stable regions of the Earth-Sun system hang out, and this is the second of the five points that he mathematically mapped out. So Webb is now there, orbiting in a period of about six months in an elliptical orbit around nothing. I mean, I saw a, a kind of a, 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 a wag on Twitter the other day said, how can Webb, the Webb telescope be orbiting nothing? Well, because it's kind of like a balance of forces. So it's moving like it's in an orbit, but it isn't really in an orbit. It's more like a, um, um, a cyclic pendulum motion uh, in the uh, balanced gravitational fields of Sun and Earth. And um, all planets have these regions of stabilities. Even moons have regions of stability if they're orbiting a primary, like the Earth's moon orbiting the Earth has an L2 point, an L1 point, an L4, an L5, an L3, and they're geometrically identical to the uh, uh, layout of the bigger L points for the Earth-Sun system. But of course, they are oriented on the moon as opposed to the Earth. Be that as it may, about uh, two and a half months ago, it was December 25th when this amazing telescope was launched. Um, it's been cruising... It was cruising out to the L2 point. They maneuvered it with thrusters, so it now is orbiting stably in the elliptical orbit that takes it about as far away from the center of the L2 region as the moon is from Earth, but out to a distance from the L2 region of something like almost uh, 800,000 miles. That's, you know, over three quarters of a million miles. So. This is a very large halo orbit. It's very leisurely. It takes about six months for Webb to make that transit, and it's constantly changing um, in space because, uh, because of the moving primaries and secondaries and the moving gravitational fields. No two orbits are identical. So if you could see it, as a time-lapse series of, um, uh, you know, spirals in space, it would appear to be a very complex 
set of what are called lazoo curves. And you can look it up on Google and get an image and you'll see how complex the celestial mechanics of keeping Webb on station actually are. Anyway, item number one. Um, a couple of days ago, after the telescope was opened up to receive, you know, light, actually, infrared photons, they announced that they had passed uh, successfully into the instrument, uh, the infrared instrument, which is going to be one of the primary cameras of the uh, telescope, and they had detected energy from space, from a star. Uh, a couple of days ago, they took uh, images of all 18 mirrors that are focusing light um, into the detectors. And if you look at item number one, that photograph is the geometry of how misaligned these separate 18 telescopes actually are. Except it's too... I mean, there's something really weird about this because we've been hearing for weeks and weeks that when they get first light, meaning the light comes through the telescope, we're going to see 18 images of 18 stars, which is the same star, but through 18 separate mirrors. And it will be kind of arrayed in a random splash across the detector. If you look at that photograph to the right of the caption, that does not look like a random array of mirrors just pointing haphazardly in any old direction. I mean, there appears to be geometry to that set of 18 separate images of stars, almost like someone preset the mirrors so when the first starlight was received, what Earth would get in the way of a telemetry transmission image is the geometry replicated through those 18 separate hexagonal mirrors, a geometry which it just looks too regular to be random, and yet I, 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 I mean, in one way, it looks kind of like a Christmas tree. In another way, it kind of looks like the head of some kind of ancient sea serpent. In, in other words, you can play this game forever. It just doesn't appear to be 18 random images of a star imaged by the misaligned 18 hexagonal separate telescopes making up the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, would I put or project some kind of um, hidden messaging for NASA to do this? Well, you're damn right I would, because they do it every time they have a chance anywhere else. So why not with with Webb? If anybody out there recognizes this geometry, and you'll have to do a little homework, um, send me an email or send me a, a, a message through the contact section of, of the website, because frankly, that does not look like a random spread of, you know, just just mathematically Gaussian blurred imagery that one would get in terms of what NASA has been telling us. And of course, uh, where have we heard that before? Item number two, this is a very reliable site. This is the uh, Where is the Web 
site from NASA, which shows you details of the instrument cooling and what the temperatures are and where they are in their timeline and, you know, all, all very good stuff, okay? So if you click on number one, that's the blog, that is a really informative piece, very carefully written article by one of the project uh, people as to how they're aligning the telescope. But that image of the first 18 uh, sub-images from the 18 hexagon, hexagonal mirrors, that just, I don't know, it's, there's something, I keep thinking, I know this, I know this, yet I can't consciously remember what it's supposed to be. Um, if you can help, please, please, have at it. Item number three. Uh, you may have heard this week that um, Elon Musk tried launching another contingent, um, 49 additional satellites of his Starlink fleet, which will ultimately be comprised of tens of thousands of separate 500-plus pound spacecraft orbiting the Earth like a swarm of gnats orbiting a uh, uh, you know lighted lamp on a late summer evening. And they will provide global satellite service to very basic and minimal and low-cost receivers ultimately anywhere on Earth, including the poles, the Amazon jungle, the middle of the Sahara. These are all places, of course, that have huge audiences, right? Yeah, right. The point is that if you're anywhere on Earth, you'll be able to pick up satellite-level transmissions, broadband transmissions, but, and this is really, really important, his system, which has received an awful lot of weird criticism uh, based on what I'm going to tell you in a moment, his system completely bypasses all the potential problems of 5G. I mean, for those of you who don't know what 5G is, it's a higher frequency transmission in the millimeter range that must be broadcast on Earth from towers spaced throughout urban areas and throughout the countryside, ultimately thousands of new towers spewing out this very short wavelength high-energy EM radiation, which from some experiments is not good for biology. But that's where the commercial carriers have decided to go, and God help us politically if uh, politicians would interfere with someone making many, many, many billions more dollars off the uh, global consumer. Enter Elon Musk, because what Elon is doing is placing his towers in orbit. And the reason that's a good thing is because the standard 5G ultra-high-frequency, very sh small millimeter-sized wavelength 5G carrier signals that they're normally talking about, they don't go more than a few miles from an antenna before the Earth's atmosphere absorbs the signal. Well, how do you build a commercial platform on that? Answer, you got to have a lot of towers. You got to have a lot of transmitters. You have to bathe the Earth in more high-frequency EM radiation, which, as Carl would have said many years ago, is not good for beagles or begonias. So here's where Musk's brilliance comes in. Because Musk's satellite system does not use these dangerous short wavelengths. 
Why? Because he can't. He has a spacecraft several hundred miles up, 300, 350 miles up, broadcasting to a home pizza-sized antenna uh, mounted on somebody's roof, okay? In order to get that signal from the satellite to the receiver, to the dish on your roof, it's got to be a wavelength low enough to penetrate the Earth's ionosphere and 100 miles of Earth's atmosphere, which means the wavelengths are much longer. They're not dangerous. They're what have been used for decades. We have a large amount of medical data showing that these frequencies are not dangerous. So what Musk is trying to do is to economically make 5G obsolete in the marketplace, not by legislation, which we can't get, not by mandates, which we can't get, not by preemptive, you know, executive orders, which we can't get, but by the economics of it's cheaper to subscribe to Musk's system than it is to the proposed and in some places fully installed 5G networks now being unveiled. And it's very interesting that with this in mind, we look at story number three. Because a few days ago, as part of his Starlink fleet launches, he had launched something like 49 additional satellites of the Starlink constellation, which will ultimately cover every square inch of the planet at some point, and you'll be handing off. You won't know this, of course, because your call or your text or your emails or your videos will go seamlessly from satellite to satellite, um, and you won't know the switching is going on. But this network actually can send data from spacecraft to spacecraft by means of lasers. So the whole network, imagine if you had all those little, you know, fireflies orbiting around a lamppost and every one of them was talking to every other firefly while simultaneously talking to you, blinking in code. That's kind of like what Musk's, you know, uh, Starlink fleet of unmanned spacecraft are going to be doing to subvert and to supplant the 5G system. Well, a few days ago, he launched his next batch of satellites, adding to the constellation already up there, which is a few thousand satellites so far. And something bizarre happened. The sun hiccuped, at least this is what we're told, and 40 of the 49 spacecraft that had just been launched, part of this Starlink fleet, promptly re-entered the Earth's atmosphere and burned up because, in fact, well, not promptly, but I mean, they've been doing it over the last several days because when the sun hiccuped, when it created two geomagnetic storms back-to-back, spaced about a day apart, what happened was the upper atmosphere of the Earth was heated from this solar activity, which was not planned, not forecast, was unexpected. The models didn't cover it. And by heating an atmosphere, you inflate it. It's like, you know, pumping air into a tire. Um, And what that does is cause the atmosphere to expand. Well, the satellites in their deployment phase initially orbit so low to the ground, only about 130 miles upstairs, that they're subject to um, air resistance, even at that altitude, if the atmosphere around them is suddenly very different and somewhat significantly denser 
than it was predicted to be. So in essence, this geomagnetic storm, two of them back to back, did in 40 of the satellites that that, uh, Musk had just launched as part of his growing and expanding Starlink constellation. Now, there are some people out there who are pointing to this and saying, oh, that's a cover story. That's an excuse. Somebody shot them down as a message to Musk, don't don't build the system. And normally, I would think that's a kind of a weird, bizarre, amazing, far out, un, unbelievable, inconceivable conspiracy theory. <clears throat> Except, look what Musk is trying to do in a very elegant way. Look at the opposition. Look at the comments. If you read that story, and then you go to the bottom, you'll see comments. There's an awful lot of muskaters out there that are using this as a kind of a bandwagon to jump on and talk about uh, why his ideas are crazy and they'll never work. And this, of course, uh, from someone who's successfully landed rockets back on their launching pads, um, has built the largest rocket ever known. It's about to be launched in its first orbital flight from Texas, who has sent a wonderful, beautiful little red roadster into an orbit of the sun that reaches beyond the orbit of Mars. You know, this is a guy who just, you know, and he's, he's running the first commercial taxi service between Earth and the International Space Station, uh, supplanting the fact that we are no longer dependent on the Russians to get us to our own space station. I mean, here's a guy, he's all, you know, as they used to say in Texas, all uh, hat and no cattle. Not... <clears throat> So why is he getting such enmity for what could be billed as an act of God? Unless maybe it wasn't the sun. Maybe something else is going on. I just want to point that out, that you know we should look at even the most exotic theories these days, because if you haven't noticed, we're living 24-7 um, in the other side of midnight land, where normally in this time slot, you know, only people like me and Art and George would hold forth with ideas that could not possibly be true, except a lot of them are. And they've now spread 24-7 around the world. And the most insane, cockamamie, outrageous, outlandish, you wouldn't believe that if someone swore on your mother's grave, are happening almost every single day and are being covered by the mainstream news media nonstop 24-7. And it's only going to get weirder, which leads me to item number four. We're going to be talking tonight about something that's really weird, which started out uh, on this uh, network as a kind of a very tentative experiment, which was uh, about two months ago. We got a bunch of people together, and with the help of David Sarita and Jimmy Blanchett, we were able to create a coded message, which we transmitted for about a month of weekends to a distant fleeing interstellar visitor called Muamua. The idea was, since apparently nobody else had tried to transmit to this interstellar anomaly, what if we transmitted to something that actively could receive the signal 
and then answerous. Since it had never been done, at least as far as we know, we figured, what do we got to lose? So we did it, beginning on December 4th as a test. And we've now been involved nonstop in receiving, recording, and decoding the most bizarre set of transmissions, radio transmissions, that anybody has ever picked up on radio, except maybe for some names that you might have heard of, uh, if nowhere else, certainly on this show, with uh, guys with names like Marconi and Tesla, who picked up something very similar, if not identical, back in the teens and 20s and 30s of the 20th century. And they said forthrightly, both of them, separately, Marconi and Tesla, that they had picked up signals that they believed came from somewhere beyond the Earth, from somewhere in interplanetary, if not more distant, space. Now, flash forward the film to December 4th of 2021. No sooner had we begun from Jimmy Blanchett's uh, radio telescope antenna to be broadcasting our uh, pre-recorded transmission on a set of key so-called sacred frequencies in the direction of Muamua, which at that moment was two and a half billion miles from Earth, an invisible speck in the dark, no way even to be detectable by any technology known on Earth, not even the world's most powerful telescopes. And um, did, I, did I say February 4th? I, I, I actually meant December 4th. For some reason, we have a penchant for the 4th, okay? Anyway, so it was December 4th, before Christmas, that we started this. And as soon as the transmission was begun from northern Arizona, the um, antenna system was visited by six or seven objects with geometry looking for all the world like spacecraft popping in and out of, of hyperspace, photobombing the region of the sky that was being looked at uh, with the camera more sighted along the antenna aiming point. And so we know that somebody with high-tech spacecraft received the transmission and hours before it could have been broadcast back from a Muamua, two and a half billion miles way out there in the dark, they kept popping in and out of our reality, demonstrating A, faster than light transmission, B, the fact that they were not limited to conventional Newtonian mechanics of rockets and things like that, C, the existence of a hyperdimensional reality, because they didn't move across space, they literally popped in for a second or two and then popped out, meaning they appeared from some place else. Substitute the word dimension for place, and you kind of got what I'm trying to communicate. Point is, that was the beginning of this extraordinary, ongoing, deepening, broadening, and growing ever more mysterious um, conundrum that we're involved in, which is, okay, we're sending signals, we're getting answers, where are the answers coming from, and who in the world? is actually answering us in terms of three dimensions. So as part of phase two 
of our efforts to figure this out. We position an intrepid researcher named Maria, Maria Wheatley, in the center of a place called Stonehenge. And two weeks ago, I'm sorry, a week ago, February 4th, Maria began a series of transmissions and then recordings that were to, shall we say, deepen, broaden, and expand the mystery because it turns out that, again, someone answered, and we're not exactly sure who it was. When we come back, Maria Wheatley, in person, will describe her journey and adventure in transmitting a signal to potential ETs from the center of Stonehenge. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. from the beginning, um, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Very, yes. very harsh. <laughs> and most people fail to, to realize the, uh, the strictness. For, and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a dotting an I, you, the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would petition the king for redress. And then the queen, king I should say, or queen, would 
determined if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redressed. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity, I think there's 12 or 13 of them now, um, that developed over the years where it basically was a, uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada. And I would urge everybody be able to support the other side of the news with the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there everybody needs an alternative source of accurate truthful information and the other side of the news provides that information that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Saturday, February 12th, 2022. God, we're already in the second month, middle of the month of the second month of 2022. Part of the explanation for what we're receiving because of the structure of the radio signals, what we call the chirps, which appear to be compressed So when you broaden them out and lower the frequency, you can see incredible detailed structure within the highly compressed packet, which is what you hear, as you're going to hear again tonight on the, uh, the other side of midnight. One of the other possibilities is that we're getting transmission literally across dimensions, in which case, if time is malleable, and it flows at different rates, 
in different dimensions, we may be hearing signals that if they start out from back to front there, are literally time reversed, and we're hearing them, we're receiving them as front to back here. In other words, we know we're getting something. We know it's intelligent. We know it's designed, but we don't know A, where it's really coming from, and B, we don't know who is responding to our calls, which of course is why we're doing a program on this this morning. Because we have the benefit of Marie Wheatley being with us. Maria is a dowsing expert. She's an archeologist. Her father was a well-known archeologist in Britain. She is well-versed in megalithic monuments and ley lines and different forms of energy that are uh, accepted and discussed in uh, mainstream scientific circles. She is very familiar with our uh, hyperdimensional model and a lot of what she has put together over the years matches the predictions of the HD model in an exquisite degree up to and including the fact that if she were to stand in Stonehenge in this ancient, ancient, thousands of years old stone set of ancient circles, something of a hyperdimensional communications nature could in fact happen. And it did. Okay, so Maria, I want you to start out on Friday morning as you're getting up and getting ready, and I want you to tell us what your thoughts were, what your anticipations were, and then kind of walk us through what they say in the news business, a uh, TikTok of what you did, where you did it, what happened when you did it, and ultimately what happened overall for you on that memorable Friday morning of February 4th when you transmitted to someone from the center of Stonehenge. Yes, well, to begin with, uh, the weather wasn't clement. It was sleeting, it was raining, it was freezing cold. And where Stonehenge is sited on the Salisbury Plain, it's on elevated ground. So whatever the temperature is in the valleys, it's much, much colder on the Salisbury Plain. So it was a freezing cold uh, day to, uh, to begin with. And Stonehenge we know is surrounded by military establishments and about a mile away is the closest one it's called lark hill and the other important military establishment about five miles to seven miles from stonehenge is porting down our nuclear biological testing center uh, and they were active on that day that means when you go along the salisbury plain you see red flags flying everywhere and that means there's live am ammunition being fired <laughs> and that you're and that you're not to turn whatever direction the red flag is flying you mustn't turn onto the plane that way so if it's flying on the red on the right hand side you don't turn right 
So that's the setting. We, as I drove in with uh, with my colleague, we were noticing that it was called an active day on the plane. Uh, so we were acknowledging that. And um, Stonehenge, uh, as we know, has many different phases. And I started to begin the journey by going into Stonehenge. We didn't have the uh, normal spiel by English Heritage. They just let us go straight in because the weather was so bad. You don't want to hang around for 20 minutes listening to somebody oh, speak. Grief. Yeah, they're their usual um, spiel that is incorrect about dates and everything anyway. So we started off by uh, transmitting 15 minutes beforehand as we were approaching Stonehenge on the bus, because you have to take a bus now to Stonehenge from the visitor centre to the actual site. So that's when I first started the uh, the transmissions. Then when I got to Stonehenge, uh, I found what's called Aubrey Hole Number 1, and Aubrey Hole Number One was the first phase of Stonehenge, and it was a stone circle of 56 highly polished blue stones. And like I mentioned on the radio before, the first stone to be placed into Stonehenge was in the ground. Uh, so we've uh, got a big quartz stone in the ground, and the blue stone number one was placed above that. And that's where I began to start transmitting. It was very uh, interesting, really, because there wasn't really a problem in all of our tests that we did previously with uh, the radio uh, a receiver device. But when I started to go away from the Aubrey holes, approaching the sanctity of Stonehenge itself, that's when the equipment started to jiggle around a little bit. Uh, it was it started to flash on and off, for example, and my phone was uh, behaving a little bit oddly. So I put them in my pockets, thinking it could have been due to the damp weather, for example, uh, and covered them up. When I was walking around Stonehenge, security came over to me because I wasn't, I suppose, not behaving like a tourist. I was walking <laughs> around the Aubrey Holes. What do they expect and, you to stand not, like a stone and freeze? <laughs> uh, I, I, th I think they do. I think if you do anything out of the ordinary at Stonehenge, they watch you like a hawk. Uh, and because I wasn't going into the centre like everybody else, I was walking around the outside. They started to follow me around. <laughs> with, uh, oh, with and we don't have video of this. Ah. Uh. No, it was just far too wet to really uh, use the, the equipment that we took. It was, you know, pelting down. And um, my colleague had an umbrella and just gently placed it into the ground to lean on when we, he came over and said, what was I doing? Why was I walking around the outside? Uh, and then he uh, proceeded to really speak quite roughly with my colleague and, and said, you know, get your umbrella out of the ground. Uh, you're damaging Stonehenge, which was it's, it's called the new surface level. To go back to the Neolithic level at Stonehenge, you have to go down over a metre, uh, you know, sort of about four or five feet down. Mm. So it wasn't doing any damage. Anyway, they followed me around for a little while. Uh, so I didn't want to actively get the device out then. And then I went into Stonehenge and then they must have radioed through to the English Heritage Guide because she then approached me. <laughs> and, You're so popular. Asked, <laughs> oh, I, I, I smile a lot to them. 
And uh, and she just said, are you doing anything commercially? Uh, what's going on? Security have alerted me. And I said, I wasn't doing anything. Started talking to her, mentioned that I was a tour guide. Uh, and it was sort of all good. And she was quite happy with that. And, and she walked off to a certain degree then. So we started the, the transmissions uh, again. And then when the most interesting thing was you do have very powerful lays, ley lines, as you say in the States. We tend to call them lays over here because lay means line. Uh, so there were some really uh, fast-flowing lays, one of which is what's called the axis line, which is northeast to southwest, which includes the main features of Stonehenge, which are the heel stone, which the moon and the sun are aligned to, and the greater trilithon, which uh, the midwinter sunsets behind, very beautifully sown. So that's the main axis line, which is very powerful. Then you have another very powerful uh, lay, which goes five degrees off north to south. It's just slightly off north. It's slightly off north because there are gaps in between the lintelled stone circle, which contains 30 stones with lintel caps on. So there's a wide opening between them. That's where the lay comes through. It flows right the way through that gap. So you're on the line uh, between the north-south stones there. And when I put the equipment onto that lay, it literally drained my phone before my eyes. What? And drained all of the, the equipment. Yes, it was really, really very, very, very fast. Wow. And uh, this, this has happened on several occasions. I took a professional photographer in because I know all of the features there. Uh, he hired me to do that. And I said to him, you know, you want to avoid the north-south sector because it will probably do something to your camera. And he had a very expensive camera worth thousands and thousands of pounds. And he went on to that, that lay and was just, you know, shrugging off what I was saying. Because well, it's very, very powerful. Well, he wanted the shot, I presume. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a really good shot because it's an unusual stone there. It's a very short stone by a very tall uh, sculptured stone. It, it's very dynamic. It, you can really see them. They stand out. And his camera just started to go, instead of seeing the, the shot, it just going white, like ghostly white. Ah. And that's been quite common at Stonehenge uh, as well. So it, it, the, these lines are highly, highly uh, powerful uh, in their own uh, regard. And in fact, even my colleague's phone, his drained as well. His went really, really low. Uh, and he was sort of getting quite, um, you know, irritated by that because uh, his car was playing up that day. <laughs> he was worried that oh. he would get in his car. Now, now you were planning to use your phone as the input for the file that Thomas and David created for this three-plus-minute yes. transmission sequence, you're using the file on the phone into the radio, yes. from the radio out through the antenna in Stonehenge, resonating the stones, and hopefully detectable many, many, many thousands of miles away, right? Yes. Yes, so, I mean, it was it was okay for about the first 20, 20, 20 minutes, I think. It was around about that time that I then started to uh, interact with the lay energy there. Well, if you knew that this lay is a dangerous place for electronics, why, given your prehistory, did you 
decide to do something on the lay that morning? Because it's the most powerful lay in the in the entire complex, and I, I wanted to see if that would do anything. Uh, maybe allow the signal to come out much louder, ah, uh, or, okay. or do something with it, because it, it flows literally all the way around the world, and it links in. Importantly, it links to all of the major sites in the British Isles. Hmm. Uh, in terms of megalithic sites. So whatever happens on that lay, you will then influence every other site on that line. Hmm, okay. So when this happened, when you're on that five degree off north line and you're watching your battery go to go to hell, um, what did you do next? Well, that's when we, we got off it and thought, yes, it's really, you know, highly active today. Maybe it's a weather pattern as well, because weather interacts with uh, some of the, the energies at Stonehenge as well. Uh, and it, it influences your dousing reaction uh, as well. So then obviously, you know, I, I get off, I get off the line and I then go to what's called the trilathon settings, of which there are five standard, very huge. They weigh about 100 tons each of stones with in that monument so you're right in the the heart of stonehenge at this at this stage with these huge stones towering above you it is it's very very atmospheric in the pouring rain and sleet <laughs> in the pouring rain and sleet uh but god you uh, are you are such an intrepid pioneer your your father would be very yes. proud of you I'm, I'm sure I'm sure he's been through all of that stone <laughs> and he'd also say and why say, didn't she know enough to come in out of the rain <laughs> <laughs> Maria where well, were you you're... standing I'm sorry to interrupt Richard but I no go ahead Maria where were you you said it was about 20 minutes when you mm. interacted with this line and and where were you standing again to begin with, on the outside of the stone circle, which is what's called the Aubrey holes, which um, are some distance from the standing stones. So that's where I started. And then you kind of walk towards the site. And I always enter Stonehenge in the correct manner as well, like the ancients did through, through stone number one and 30, it's called. And no tourist does that. Hmm. Hi there. Uh, this is Thomas, uh, Maria. So, whereabouts did you did you broadcast? Um, I'll tell you what, guys. But before we bombard our questions, let her go through the narrative. We got plenty of time. Then we'll do this and ask her because I know we're looking at certain readings at certain geometries when she was in certain places. That's why we wanted the video record so we could sync that TikTok up. So she'll have to do it, you know, from memory, but let's let her finish the coherent story and then we'll we'll go back and do that in the next half hour. Marie, go ahead. Yes, yeah, so with, uh, with, with, with Stonehenge, you can interact with different uh, times of the monument as well, different phases. And I think that one of the most strong, this is why I think wait, 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 wait. originally... What, 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 what the heck did you just say? Well, you've got different phases at Stonehenge. You've got phase Oh, you one, mean in terms which, of the construction, reconstruction? In terms of construction. Okay. Yes, and, and I think the reason why the number 56 came up to begin with, which is phase one, is because it was all just the blue stones. Yeah, and for the, the folks who missed like, that, we, we did a series of Amuamua transmissions to the moon, 
and David decoded the frequencies on his meter that night, and the number 56 kept popping up again and again and again, and we talked, and he hadn't a clue, and I said, oh my God, that's Stonehenge, that's the Aubrey Holes. And then we contacted you, I, I tried to contact you live, and, and you were transiting somewhere, you know, in, from Wales, I guess, with, with no Wi-Fi, so you didn't get the message till the next day, but, but we were told by whomever we're talking to, look at Stonehenge, which is why you wound up in the sleet and rain, freezing your you-know-what off, um, watching your batteries drain in the middle of this monument, because they, whoever they are, said, go to Stonehenge. Yes, uh, exactly. And so the, the, the first phase of construction at Stonehenge was the 56 blue stones. It's a perfect stone circle containing all of uh, the blue stones and the different types of blue stones as well, because that's a generic word. Some of the blue stones have particular lined features in them of like felspar quartz-like material going down. And it was a very large stone circle. And these, the, that is the most powerful part of Stonehenge, which is around Aubrey Hole number one to seven going round. Uh, in terms of magnetic anomalies as well, which was done by English Heritage. And so if you imagine you've got this huge 56 blue stones in a, a gigantic stone circle, much, much larger than what we see Stonehenge today, with this uh, electro, well, they call it an electromagnetic flow, English Heritage, when they did some geophys there, it flows into that area as well. So it's a, it's a very highly active area. And the, the blue stones, when it comes to uh, any type of earth energy beneath the ground, uh, react more strongly to that than sarsen. But if, hang on, hang on. If, 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 people, if people want to see what Marie is talking about, go to number four of her items. This is an aerial photograph looking down on Stonehenge from probably a helicopter, maybe a drone. And that whitish half circle, that is a, uh, a chalk... Uh, uh, mound and, and ditch and the Aubrey holes the original phase one bluestone sockets uh, of this hundreds of foot wide circle are just inside that half circle of uh, whitish material which is very far away from the center of what's considered Stonehenge now and that's where you started Yes, so that's that's the phase one. And just to say, what we can't see today is the ditch and the bank, which is called a henge. That's what a henge means. It's a ditch and a bank. Was ten feet high. So whatever happened on the inside of Stonehenge could not be seen by anybody that was outside of Stonehenge. Mm. It was a very secretive place. And it's a little known fact about Stonehenge because people see it as it is today. Brilliant, highly polished chalk bank as well. So it would have been brilliant white against these beautiful, very dark, midnight blue stones. So wow. it would have been a very aesthetically pleasing looking monument. So that's why I think, and also the, that stone circle is intimately associated to the moon uh, because if you have 19, 18 and 19 cycles, according to Gerald Hawkins that investigated Stonehenge, that equates to the number 56 as well. So it's, it's activated uh, by 
the the moon as well which is what the heel stone was originally designed to focus on the moon's metonic cycle not the sun the sun is a degree off at stonehenge but it's the well-known one so it really is one of the most powerful monuments and what the ancients did again which is little known they dismantled it and i think they dismantled the the blue stones because it became highly maybe too highly active because by that stage just before they dismantled those 56 blue stones they built a fence on top of the henge bank to block it off even more to outsiders so something was going on that was very strange in, hmm. in that uh, part of Stonehenge's history. Hmm. Fascinating. Okay, so you're standing there in the rain, you're on the lay, you're watching your batteries drain, you move off the lay, what happens next? Well, then uh, I start to uh, look around by the uh, the trilophones and I'm walking uh, around in a clockwise motion, which is the, the way that uh, druids uh, traditionally walk around a stone circle and uh, seeing if my battery would uh, would come back uh, to life, uh, which it, which uh, it flickered for a while. The phones were, were flickering uh, and my, my colleagues as well. So it was even when you were off the line, I think Stonehenge was highly active that day. Hmm. And the uh, the security walkie-talkie, his he kept. Uh, we noticed he kept like looking at his uh, walkie-talkie <laughs> as well, as if something was going on. So we were noticing around. It just seemed to be a very highly charged day. Well, February fourth, in terms of the ritual calendar, geometrically with the sun and the moon, it's 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 not a random day, is it? No, it's called Imbolc to, to the Druids. It's um, a day when uh, Druids believe the veil between this world and the next grows thin. And the, it's the, the stirring of springtime. It's, it's been celebrated for thousands and thousands of years. And we Christianized to uh, Candlemas. The the Christians uh, renamed all of the pagan festival dates to to their own description. So it was the, it's the day of the goddess as well. It's, it's a great goddess Breed's Day. Uh, again, she was Christianized to Saint Bridget, but it's Breed's Day where where she kind of gives the fertility back to the earth. It's it's a very very ancient festival. I'll tell you what. We're at the top of the hour. My first guest this morning, Maria Wheatley, <clears throat> the intrepid Lady Maria, who is, um, gosh, you, ha you, have, you have courage and endurance and all those things that uh, polar explorers used to have to have just to transmit a signal, a preset set of codes from the center of Stonehenge. Do not touch that dial. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Thanks for listening to this exciting first hour. Now, the second and third hour of the show is available to Club 19.5 members only. Please support the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 and join our very interesting community. To do that, please visit the website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the left-hand column. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.